Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. Today I have for you a very chilling tale of murder and intrigue dating back to the early 1900s in Berrien County. We're going to take a journey into this dark tale, but we're not going to be traveling there alone. I have with me today a very special guest, Rhiannon Sisson from the Berrien County Historical Association, who's been researching this true crime story for quite some time. She's going to serve as our tour guide through this tale of the murder of Minton Northup that involves Berrien County and also northern Indiana. Welcome to the show, Rhiannon. Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I see uh, your post quite often in a lot of the groups I'm in, so it's nice that you came down to Berrien Springs to join us. All right. Well, I'm happy to have you. So, could you, Rihanna, could you begin to by telling everyone a little bit about yourself and your role with the Berrien County Historical Association? Yeah, I am the executive director. I have been in this position since 2019, um, and I have unfortunately have been <laughs> battling things like global pandemics and you know <laughs> potential recessions and a lot of things that tend to be very detrimental museums, but we have been very lucky. Um, Our support for the organization is quite strong and getting stronger at every turn. Um, Mm -hmm. And we survived both COVID and we continue to remain open to the public today. Um, I come to Michigan. uh, I applied for the position out of nostalgia. I used to vacation in Harbor Country down near New Buffalo and um, uh, Lakeside and all that as a child. My grandfather and grandmother, my dad's side had a vacation house. So um, I have some faint memories of northern and central Lake County, but we were basically harbor country. So when the position yeah. came open, I had to apply, and um, it was it was a challenge because they, they we were due for some fresh perspective. Let's just right. put it that way. And so we've been doing a lot of renovation, upgrades, changing to exhibits, expanding our programs, and basically improving how we're operating so we can better serve. Um, Everybody. We serve anyone who comes to Berrien County. We serve the residents and visitors and businesses and organizations. And honestly, the cleaning and the organizing is actually what led to our discovery of, well, today's today's, today's talk. So it's worked out because now I have these fun stories I can share with everyone. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, I, was, uh, I did a little episode on Berrien Springs, and I talked a little bit about the courthouse there that you have, that's part of your museum, right? And uh, Yes, so we operate, yeah, the courthouse square. So that mm-hmm. lovely building is is my responsibility to keep it up going and hopefully not, you know, damaged in any way. So, Well, well that's an exciting project, I'm sure. And starting a new job in 2019, I think there's a lot of people out there um, can I sympathize with you. That's a difficult uh, chapter in our history. But what oh, sparked your interest in t- today's story that we're going to go into, this Minton Northup murder that happened? So as part of our overall, I call it the gutting process, mm-hmm. we have been trying to improve areas in the museum that are very bad, I guess is the best way to put it. They've been um, ignored yeah. and left to grow wild um, Uh with no order to it and therefore not useful. And we have a lot of research files. So 
we've had a very dedicated volunteer for the last year and a half, I think, uh -huh. um, slowly go through these files, figure out what we have in there. And she, we're trying to figure out what the filing system will be. So if people want to come do research, they know they can go into the files. And Brenda had come to me and she goes, look at this. And it was a very early, like 90s style kind of photocopy of a uh -huh. handwritten threat um, to an undersheriff, Irving Pearl, in 1905. Wow. And I was like, well, this is pretty cool. I got I to gotta look into this. Um, uh -huh. And so we... I photo I, I I scanned the the copy uh -huh. that we had, and thank God for things like newspapers.com and even ancestry.com. I was actually able to find um, information about uh, under under Sheriff Pearl, uh -huh. and I stepped it back to find why he was getting threatened, and we found the case. And um, eventually, we're going to have to probably go into newspapers that are not scanned, but because it dealt with a Benton Harbor. Uh, technically right. a Benton Township gentleman. Um, a lot of it was being reported in the St. Joe newspapers, which are scanned. Um, okay. We even pulled out a little bit and went regionally because we it was reported in one of the editions that there were reports about him being seen down in Muncie, Indiana. He was eventually found in Syracuse, New York. So we'll eventually go into those newspapers and see what tantalizing uh -huh. things they have to say. But we wanted to put together. We found it right before the anniversary of the... Um, the letter was written on February 22nd, 1905. And so that led me down this rabbit hole. And now wow. I have this amazing story. Well, it's not amazing. A poor man died in a very brutal way. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's amazing to us a hundred years later. I mean, that's right. And I think it's a good example <laughs> of why I study history and why I enjoy history. It's humanity is, you know, not, there's no changes. People are people. Our method of communication may be changing, but you know, getting a letter telling you if you, if you, you know, I think it was, you'll never walk you know, safely again at night if you continue to pursue this case. I mean, those are no just different than threats people are giving each other on Facebook, right. just the public on Facebook right. and this. But yeah, so that's what started it. And I got really into the story and we kind of go back and forth. It's not something I can continue to just study, but something will pop up or, you know, a name will pop up and I'll go back and do a little bit of research and uh -huh. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll have this better fleshed out um, as I continue to use different combinations to find these articles. And we anticipate uh -huh. having an actual live presentation on this talk in April at the Lincoln Township Library in Stevensville. Well, that'll be great. I'm looking forward so, to it. I like the story. <laughs> good. Well, could you take us a little bit through the timeline of the murder and the investigation? Yeah, so um, the player. Well, let's start with the players first. Who are who? Okay. The who's who of this car? Because uh, there will be some names. So Irving Pearl was a local contractor that also doubled as an officer for the Berrien County Sheriff's Department, and by 1900 had been listed as an under sheriff. So kind mm -hmm. of he was like like an assistant deputy sheriff. He wasn't a deputy, but he was like right underneath the sheriff. Okay. Um, he was very well respected. Um, when you go look for his name, he you, know, you find information about how he was quite respected and did a lot of investigations. He was very good. He had a very good track record. The next gentleman's our victim. He is a mentor or mentor. There's a couple of different spellings even in the newspapers. That's <laughs> why you got to try every combination you can. Um, right. His last name is Northrop. He was an older gentleman 
uh, working as a farmhand in Benton Township. Um, and he, prior to this incident, came into some money um, and was kind of a very jovial man, very well-liked. Um, he'd been working for the farm. He'd been on about seven years. Okay. The killer is a man by the name of Ed Donahue, who had a very long history of horse thieving, robbery. Um, there didn't seem to be much in the way of my major assault cases. He was mostly a thief. Um, mm -hmm. He eventually got a job in Berrien County working as a farmhand for whoever would hire him. Uh, somehow he got word of Northrop's money and convinced Northrop to partner with him to sell some horses. And that's what triggers it. So oh. the, year is, the year is 19, it's October 1904. Uh -huh. Minter and Ed have become friendly with each other. And Ed has convinced, um, has convinced Minter uh, to go down and sell a horse in Indiana, uh, more specifically in the Miller slash Lake Station neighborhoods. Uh, Lake Station's an actual city. Miller is a community part of Gary. So the Gary Lake Station area. Okay. Um, so it's Hobart. But so it was Lake County, Indiana. So. We okay. local, I know exactly, I know the area they're talking about. It's hard to describe. It's like it's all the same once you're down there. Right, um, right. Anyway, in the Miller area of what is now Gary in Lake County, Indiana. And then Minter never came back. Eventually, his wife became so concerned that she reported him missing to the police. And she had mentioned meeting Donahue, who had, probably in a very stupid move, had gone directly to the Northrop house to meet with Minter about selling this horse. So they alerted wow. folks down in Indiana, and according to one news article, um, it was shared throughout Northwest Indiana that they were that this man was missing. This is what he looked like, and in early October, um, a body was found in a field not too far from uh, the Lake Station Miller border by a group of boys who were herding cattle through the area. It was the article said that a bull had uncovered a body. Um, the body was. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, so, so, so was he partially buried or something, or just laying out in the he, field? He suspect that he may have been partially buried, but they think okay. because of where he fell, it just it was a field, so it was just naturally covered. Um, right. The body was very deteriorated, um, and it was missing. Uh, the description saying that was it almost seemed like his skull had been partially ripped off, um, and his face was damaged. So, in a sense, okay. they could not identify him by his looks so they hauled the body in did an autopsy figured out that he had suffered serious blunt trauma to the head obviously if like half his mm. skull seemed to be coming off right. he was shot five times and he showed some evidence of a fight that like he was fighting his attacker right eventually the word got to the coroner that there was a missing man in the area and so they took some information about the body and sent it to Berrien county and it was discovered he was wearing the pin of a fraternal organization that he had been a part of. And that's how they identified him, was by wow. what he was wearing. Pin happened okay. to be on him. They said, oh, my gosh, yeah, he's a high-ranking person in this organization. I have wow. not been able to figure out what that organization is yet because it just says fraternal organization. And it gives, like, another word. But it's so generic sounding, it's been difficult to find this. So the hunt wow, so he, he could have been 
uh, a member of the Knights of the Maccabees or any of those clubs mm-hmm. at that time or something like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and there was and there's all these little social groups that kind of came and went in the turn of the century that mm-hmm. were just little one offs and, you know, were very right. rare to the point that very few people ever heard of them. And some are local to the area that only a small group was a part of. So but anyway, he was wearing the pin when he died because he was very mm-hmm. proud of his membership. And that's right. how his wife identified him. Um, they they took the wife down there and she obviously couldn't see the body because you don't want to show anybody that. You don't, nobody needs to see yeah. that. Um, yeah, the state and, of decomposition at that point was probably yeah, pretty especially bad. especially since he'd been exposed to the elements, that body really mm-hmm. wasn't deeply buried, if buried at all. Um, and so she identified it via that pen. So by this point, we're in October. And now we've got the Lake County um, Sheriff's Office involved. We've got the Berrien County Sheriff's Office involved, and we've got a man who's on the run. Um, as said earlier, Mrs. Donahue, or excuse me, Mrs. Northrup identified Donahue, and it made the most sense because mm-hmm. there was a talk of selling a horse, and Donahue had a history of horse theft because they did take a horse down, and the horse was missing, plus five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So they suspect that. They were eventually able to sell the horse, the 500 of what was stolen. They were able to trace the horse back. So they were able to figure out the sale had occurred and the plan had been to rob um, Minter, but he fought back. So this was not something that I think Donahue was expecting. um, And that's why it was such a violent death. He probably tried to knock Minter out. Minter still fought back. And so then he was resorting to shooting this poor man until he died. Right. So John here remained on the run until December. Um, there were sightings um, down in Muncie. There were sightings in Ohio. Um, but he actually made it all the way to Syracuse, New York. His mother wow. lived there. And he was hiding out with his mom. And somebody <laughs> local recognized him and was like, bro, you're wanted for murder and turned him in. And wow. so the Syracuse police um, did arrest him and held him until Pearl and the sheriff from Berrien County, or excuse me, from Lake County were able to go out and extradite him back to Indiana. Now, because the murder occurred in Indiana, um, it was tried in Indiana. So there was actually no trial actually done in Michigan. Pearl's responsibility was to find as much information pre and post murder on the off chance that Donahue came back. There was a rumor that Donahue had been seen as um, in Michigan and Kalamazoo. So they need to make sure that he didn't mm-hmm. pass back through Berrien County and may have done some business there. Okay. We do know that there was a $500 award on his head. Um, I don't know if it ever got paid out because it, that will, ha- I'd have to find out from the Syracuse newspapers what happened to the reward. Right. But, right. Um, so he was arrested, extradited back to Indiana and the trial actually was, I was surprised how fast the trial went. Um, it was considered, he was um, charged with capital murder. Um, and so that meant that the death penalty could be put on the, um, the table. The, the trial was rather quick. Um, I suppose they all were back in the day when you had far less, <laughs> uh-huh. far less right. to, to go through to prove your case, I guess. But it right. started in January of 1905. And the very first threat that Irving Pearl received in the course of the trial was the end of January. And it was just a short one attached to his house, basically telling them, 
to lay off, you know, lay off the case. Don't do any more investigation. It was a pretty straightforward letter. Um, uh-huh. It was reproduced in the newspaper. So it was a very straightforward letter. There was no real major threats, just you'll be sorry if you keep doing this, right? Right, right. Um, <laughs> so the case, the trial lasted a little over a month and concluded on February 22nd, 1905. It went to jury and the jury was in deliberation for about 24 hours um, and came back the next day. And they found uh, Donahue guilty of murder of um, Northrop and the judge sentenced for him to hang. Right. Um, the day the jury went into deliberation is when the second letter was um, was posted to his house. And I do have a copy of that because um, my favorite thing is the language is clearly it is a person who is educated. Um, this is not written by some street urchin or some mm-hmm. illiterate, you know, worker. This is someone who's, I mean, it quotes Latin. This is somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, Pearl actually never investigated any of these and said it wasn't a big deal. In fact, when it, when the article came out about the second threat, he's like, right. whatever. <laughs> I don't care. Wow. <laughs> so it was a, the the letters weren't sent from Donahue, were they? Or they maybe he wrote them and had no. someone post them or? No, Donahue had made some connections in the area. There's always been rough and tumble types throughout, uh-huh. obviously, Berrien County and our connections to like different gangs and whatever by the time we got to the 30s. Um, so he apparently had a crew that he kind of ran with in the short time he was in Berrien County. But there may have, the crew may have been from somewhere else. They, they never did figure out where the source was. Um, so it was dated, we, uh, it was dated Benton Harbor. February 22nd, 1905, Mr. Oh. Irving Pearl, you have succeeded, but beware, you must resign your office in the next 60 days or plans will be made to fulfill the just threats that have been made. We are many in number and our ability to do is great. Your doom may not come today. It may not come tomorrow, but as true as you live and God rules, you must suffer. If not you, then you're well it's very kind of awkward. You're well, the one you love. So basically he's threatening yeah. the family uh-huh. as chief of the tribe of death. I'm human and give you fair warning. Repent by resigning your office within 60 days. No harm can come from you, but ignore us once more. And so help us. You powers of darkness. It won't be safe for you to go alone at night signed. And it's, the signature is very weird and it's in Latin. So we, none of us speak Latin on staff. So we have mm. to figure out what it's actually written. But what wow. is fascinating about this is it has like a skull and crossbones and uh-huh. they would make words bigger and underline them. It's, it's not even just what was written. It's also the visualness of this paper. Whoever, whoever wrote this wanted it to be very impactful with skull and crossbones on the, on the on the letter and on and on the envelope mm-hmm. and so it's this hugely dramatic thing um using things like you know tribe of death and powers of darkness likely they're trying to invoke some level of i wouldn't say satanic behavior but what they're trying to do is make it very clear that they're very very evil and they will follow through in their threats which by the way they never did um mm-hmm. irving did die in 1905 but he died of a uh, a bloodborne illness contracted the year prior from a, another case. And oh, so okay. 
see, I don't know where the original is at. I don't know who has the original. I don't even know why we had it in our collections. Mm -hmm. um, but we had the photocopy and that's what triggered it. So Pearl, um, he didn't care. Whatever. You know, make yeah. your threats. I'll, I'll, I'll solve the problem. I don't care. He was a very hardy man, apparently. Um, and then about three months, two to three months, I believe it was like April or May, it was announced that the state, Indiana state had commuted um, Donahue's sentence to life in jail. So he did not die. Um, uh -huh. I believe he served some time and then was later. I've not been able to find the records for him. He disappears uh -huh. from any mention of in the newspapers. So I need to figure out where he was sent because it's likely we might be able to find information in the newspapers from the jail he was at. Because there's a couple of different state penitentiaries in Indiana or jails he could have been sent to. Um, right. But he did spend quite a few, quite a few years, as far as we can tell, in jail. Uh, but then he disappears. Um, Minter was brought back to Varian County and buried. Um, his wife, you know, lived out her life. I don't know if she ever got remarried. We have not investigated much of her story quite yet because the focus has been Irving. Uh -huh. um, Irving would uh, was suffering from serious health issues during this time. He, can, as I said earlier, he contracted a bloodborne illness um, okay. in 1904, recovering a dead body out of the St. Joe River in Berrien Springs. Um, it was a young college student who had committed suicide, had been missing for months. They found her washed up on the banks just not too far from Andrews University, where she had been a student. And it said hmm. that he contracted a bloodborne illness at that time. So hmm. having done some Google searching, that would probably get me on an FBI watch list. Um, <laughs> at least I suspect he may have contracted some version of hepatitis. Um, it is one of the hepatitis yeah. B and C as well as A, although that's more gastrointestinal, um, can be contracted from a dead body. Um, it's not like they were handling with like, you know, plastic gloves or latex. Yeah, they probably right? didn't know any of that at that exactly, time. Exactly. Yeah. Sure, yeah. So they ended up pulling the body out and he somehow injured himself in the process and he remained ill um, on and off for the next year. It didn't stop him from running his construction business. It didn't stop him mm -hmm. from being under sheriff. He did his job. Clearly, he brought help bring this man to justice. And then um, in October of 1905, so about a year after the case had all started, he began going downhill and he eventually um, succumbed to the illness. There was a very large, uh, a relatively large um, obituary for him. So that's where we were able to find about the Olive Templeton case um, and oh. a couple of others. But we do know that he eventually died October 29th in the evening. Um, and he uh, left behind three children and his wife, Nettie. Um, and he was quite well respected. It was a very large funeral and it was paid for by the Masons of which he was a um, level three master Mason with them had been oh, for several years. Um, and they paid for his funeral and had him on display in the Masonic Lodge. But, you know, he left behind a probably one of the better records of any officer I can oh. seem to find. I mean, it was just that that was what they talked about. His record was phenomenal. He was a very thorough investigator Mm -hmm. um, and that helped. That helped a lot of what he had found in the leading up to Mentor and um, Ed leaving for Indiana really is what set the case because they were able to say there was some premeditated crime planning to happen, even right. if the murder itself was not premeditated. Um, it was definitely 
too sloppy to be premeditated. Um, and he didn't have enough of a history to prove that he could have planned, you know, the murder ahead of time, but the robbery was definitely planned. So, um, they were able to get enough evidence to help that case succeed. Obviously it did because he was found guilty. Um, Mm -hmm. and so the case, there's not as much to the case as I would like to have hoped in our newspapers. So like I said, I need to start going into the Indiana papers of which thankfully I have connections in Lake County Mm -hmm. to help me out with that. Um, and I'm looking forward to expanding the story out a little bit more and learning a little bit more about Donahue's uh, criminal history. And hopefully we can find a little bit more about Northrop and figure out what this poor man's name is. <laughs> right, right. Well, three different ways in five different newspapers. So Yeah, you I, know, that's common when you do the research on it because the different newspapers will do their own interpretation of it or just yep. maybe they just made a typo, you know, and... Uh, it's kind of interesting. They, and then they have to keep with that typo because it'll look stupid. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, while I was waiting for you to come on the show, I looked up a couple of articles on it and one of them had his name as a mentor and the other one is a mm-hmm. period mentor. And, um, yep. so it's just different, you know, it's a different interpretation. You kind of have to, um, do what you can to find ideally the best we would confirm it would be a death record or something, you know? Uh, like a death certificate. Yeah, and I'm hoping you really ancestry to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've done a lot, a lot of amazing research on this very peculiar story, and it brings a light of mystery because there must have been some sort of gang that Donahue was operating with. And was was Donahue maybe uh, Irish? Is is that an Irish name? Yeah, Donahue. Maybe it was Irish. an Irish mob, um, maybe. Um, could have been, or he could have just been part of a, um, just a standard little Irish gang. The thing about a lot of the gangs, especially in Chicago, is for every, like, Chicago, I just was just doing some research on this for our um, St. Valentine's Day Massacre video. Um, For every Chicago outfit or Northsiders gang, for every Al Capone, you have dozens of these little small ragtag gangs that kind of run around was not yep. well organized um mm-hmm. and it's not a, it wouldn't be it doesn't surprise me because from what i found out about what little i was able to find about donahue um he definitely uh had a very long history he strikes it's it, it hints at that he had a very long history and a pretty, pretty mm-hmm. long criminal record again yeah. mostly theft and petty crime um but Donahue did have this very long history. And if he's running with a gang, that would explain a lot of the theft and the pettiness. Cause if he didn't need to kill someone, there was mm-hmm. no point, especially if you had someone else in the gang to kill. Um, I think his, I'm, I don't think he was expecting mentor to fight back. And I, yeah. you know, it's, it does strike me as a case of, Oh no, I got to get away and get this money mm-hmm. and may have possibly just snapped. You know, it's one thing. Oh, and to, it could it could also know, be that he set up. Could it also be that he set up an ambush for him with his gang and walked him into into an they, ambush? I you know, I, that's why I want to find the original court case records, mm-hmm. which I'm sure is in the Lake County court system still. Um, it should be. It sh- they should still have those records um, because it doesn't say in any of the reports if there was anybody else involved. Um, Mrs. Northrup did not mm. see anybody else come around. She only ever saw Donahue. Um, Donahue was the only one mm. seen with him. So there's, if he was coordinating with some of his gang, 
Um, there was no indication on the Michigan side that they were able to find. But if he did have a gang, it might explain why it was so violent. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe he, you know, if you're more likely to be startled and, and, and keep going if you've got people around you, especially, you know, gotta get him, gotta get him, gotta get him, do it, do it, do it, especially if people are yelling in your ear. Um, so there's been no, I've found no indication of any other potential murderers, um, a second or third or whatever um, mm-hmm. murderer, or anybody that may have been around. Um, there's one article I found that mentioned that Donahue was like in a carriage or something, um, mm. but none of the other articles mention that. So, you know, it could be maybe Donahue paired with someone he knew to pick him up and drive him around. And then, you know, maybe uh. that got involved, but that's all speculation. I've not found anything like that, um, but it'd be interesting to see what kind of witnesses were pulled for the court case um, other than Mrs. Donahue and then likely probably mm-hmm. uh, the kids who found the body. Um, and that, I don't know if that's scanned online and I'm looking forward to finding that to see if there were any other people involved. Uh, but it was clear that Donahue had connections. He had people who kind of had his back. The I guess the, they used to call it the code of the pirates, but I guess the code of the mm-hmm. gangsters is more like it, um, where you kind of, you ride or die for your crew. And, you know, clearly whoever it was, I mean, we're, they're speaking in, in, in plural. They don't necessarily have to be plural. It could have been a single person yeah. just yeah. trying to make it seem like there was more of them to create a bigger threat. You know, there's many mm-hmm. of us. We'll come find you, right? Instead of like one guy having like, you know. And, yeah, and it could have been, him. you know, Donahue's brother or somebody doing that too. You never right. know. Right, so. you know, because I don't know anything about yeah. siblings and, you know, mm-hmm. it's. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if someone came down from the Donahue family to keep an eye on the court case. The family, mm-hmm. just because his mom was in Syracuse, doesn't mean if he had any other family that they were in Syracuse, too. Right, right. So there's a lot of questions. I'm still on the investigative side, but it's because there are so many questions, it's what makes it so exciting. Like mm-hmm. what combinations, what files, what newspapers, because um, it does. It like, you know, the different mm-hmm. spellings will result in different articles. Yep. And in different combinations and locations. So I've been, I focus mostly on the Berrien County stuff that I will be getting into the Lake County stuff soon. And I'm going to be excited about that because I'm sure they have even more information, although they were obviously sharing because the details I've been able to find about, you know, the coroner's mm-hmm. report being reported in the Berrien County newspapers are not like super detailed, but They've got some pretty dramatic, <laughs> some pretty yeah. dramatic tones to them. So somebody definitely got a hold of the the coroner's report. Yeah, so. I wouldn't be surprised if you if you came across the transcripts published in the newspaper because I've I've done a lot of Victorian era research and I'll suddenly find the whole transcripts um, over several articles being published uh, as late as the eighteen nineties. So you're nineteen oh four. Possibly you might you might find that practice was still going on during that time, you know, so it might be in the Lake County papers or or something like that, where you'll get unfolding a lot more details than you didn't even imagine was in the case, you know, with people that were, you know, testified and, you know, information, uh, more details about how they found Minton and, or Minton Northup, you know, and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So, Yes, uh, it's always fun to do this kind of research. So, could we talk a little bit about the Berrien County Historical Association and what people might uh, do to find out more about you and what they can expect when maybe they tour your museum? Yeah, I 
would be happy to talk. I love talking about the museum. I'm very proud of what work we're doing and the way we're advancing our mm -hmm. narrative to keep pressing forward on historical pride right. and, you know, presentation. Um, so the Barrington County Historical Association was established in 1968 to save the 1839 County Courthouse. Okay. Um, over the next 30 some years, uh, the remaining portion of what had been the Courthouse Square, which was the original okay. county seat for Berrien County, um, was recaptured, so to speak, with the sheriff's residence purchased in the 1980s and the records building finally purchased in the late, two, uh, late 90s and finally emptied out of its existing residence by the early 2000s. Um, oh, okay. So it's 1.6 acres. And in addition to those three buildings, um, the courthouse being the oldest of its kind in Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, in 1973, the oldest two-story log cabin in Michigan was moved from Kephart Road to our property, the Murdoch Log Cabin. Um, mm -hmm. It is still two-story. It's a really cool building. Um, and that was given to us for preservation purposes. And then in the 1970s, about the mid, about 77, I think, um, mm -hmm. The Bennett family came to the BCHA with an estate gift from their father, who was a supporter of the of the organization and what they were doing to preserve history in Berrien County. Mm -hmm. um, and the money was used to create Bennett's Forge out of an existing building built. We refer to it as the aux, the LSD Auxiliary Building. Um, so Seventh okay. Day Adventists owned the property at one point, the courthouse, and used it as a church. And then bought some adjacent property, which had been part of the original courthouse square. Um, okay. And they built two buildings. One was an auxiliary building to help with their space problem by the 1950s. And then a doctor's mm -hmm. office, uh, which eventually went to Andrews. Um, we tore the building, the doctor's building down because it was just a simple standard office mm -hmm. building. But we were going to tear down the auxiliary building until the Bennett's came to us. And it's been Bennett's Forge ever since. And on occasion, we do have uh, blacksmiths in there. but that is our okay. next major renovation project is to gut that building and redo it so that okay. it's been its forge um, and workshops. So we can start having um, traditional arts workshops in there and um, oh, that'd be great. anything we feel we want to do. We need a workshop space for our, right. for, for programs. And whatever. So that's probably about a year out and we, we're going to begin raising funds for that this year. Um, so in general, the BCHA um, has five buildings plus the jail plaza that they operate on behalf of Berrien County who purchased all of the buildings either outright or from us having purchased and then gave to the county, thus uniting the original courthouse square. Um, we've wow. been part of the parks department since 2014. And so we okay. are technically a county park. So if you want to come wander my grounds on a nice, lovely summer day, you're more than welcome to do so even if the museum are closed. Um, wow. We're open year round and Four of our five buildings are open to the public. The records building built in 19, uh, 1860 is not that building. Bless its heart. County's most historic storage shed, but we love it still. Um, the remaining four <laughs> buildings, I know, the remaining four buildings are open to the public uh, throughout the year. Um, but the we often close Bennett's Forge and the cabin when the weather gets below 40 degrees as they are not heated and it gets dangerous. Mm -hmm people to be in those buildings temperature wise mm -hmm. um but admission is free donations are welcomed and we have a whole host of programs uh that you can check out throughout the year but if you want to come just have a visit and see what we've been doing we're open wednesday through sunday 10 a.m to 5 p.m 
at this time for the next two weeks, I don't know when, for the first half of February, how about I say that? I don't know when Mm -hmm. this is going up. Uh, the sheriff's residence will be closed for some uh, exhibit updates, but then it'll be open back to the public. And our next temporary exhibit will be in April, and that will be Bitter Battle, the elections that changed Berrien County. Um, wow. And, yeah, that sounds so interesting. That's a fun time. Yeah, I should have given that one to you. That's a great one. So um, the county seat was <laughs> we'll originally have to have Berrien you back on and talk about that. That sounds like... The... Oh, absolutely. So what happened was, is in 1880, there was an election to move the county seat from Berrien Springs to Niles, um, right. dubbed the Boston of the Boston <laughs> of Berrien County, aka the center right. of the universe. Um, it failed, and the county seat remained in Berrien Springs until it went to election in 1894, and in that election, St. Joe won. So the county okay. seat was moved from Berrien Springs to St. Joe, and it's been there ever since. But we call it bitter battle because if you actually read the newspapers regarding these elections, it is nasty. Mm. It is St. Joe in 1894 are the meanest people alive. Like they're attacking each <laughs> other. You've got political officials trashing each other <laughs> in the newspaper. You know, it's, 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 it's a fun one. I'll be happy to come back and talk about that one. But that's our next that's our next exhibit. Well, I got okay. to start working on that. And our next major event, uh, we're not doing too much right now because we're getting our collections and redoing that. Mm-hmm. There's the stuff going on. Um, but our next major um, event will be, or our first major event of the year, will be our Garden Lovers Weekend, March 25th and 26th. Uh, we are accepting proposals now through uh, February 15th for those who want to present a workshop or a talk on garden topics. And then mm-hmm. we will open up registration in early March, and we should have our, we should have our schedule by then. If you want to follow us on Facebook, we're the um, the History Center at Courthouse Square. We are on okay. Instagram, the History Center. Don't ask me how lucky we got getting that. There are tons of the History Centers out there. Wow, uh, we so are not on a... Twitter. So... <laughs> we got it. I don't know how we got it. Someone found, someone put it in there. Um, and then we're online at BarianHistory.org. If you are interested in seeing previous talks, including one about Bitter Battle that I did last year. Um, mm-hmm. I've since refined it. I've found more stuff as I continue the research for the exhibit. Um, you can go to uh, YouTube and Google Bering County Historical Association, and we have all of our past, most of our past lectures. There's a few that are a little wonky. There's a few that are missing because they never got recorded. But okay. most of our past lectures are on there. Garden Lovers Weekend from last year is on there. And our new series, Building History Brick by Brick, um, it's a, about a seven-minute video series we're doing each month talking about history through the eyes of a brick wow it works interesting surprisingly <laughs> so well, all of that is available way of doing it. Yeah. well it the the brick was a joke and then the joke became an actual project so that's yeah. what we do at the bcha we make something out of nothing including a brick that has a dubious <laughs> history um so find us online or you can email us at info at bearinghistory.org we'd love to hear from you um we're always looking for volunteers presenters and partners ensure that history remains accessible, free, and available for all. Well, that is great. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show today, Rhiannon. This has been fascinating. I always love talking about true crime stories, but also about learning about uh, amazing history and uh, museums that are in our uh, neighborhood right here in southwest michigan and i i really want people to go check out museums because you can learn so much about the area you're living in and every county every city's got a whole different 
uh, perspective on history, and you learn so much by taking those taking time to go to those places. So mm-hmm. I'm so happy you guys came on, and I'll definitely have to have you back on. So um, we're going to wrap up now. So I've been speaking with Rhiannon Cezanne from the Berrien County Historical Association, and I will put the links in the show notes that she mentions so that you can find out more about the museum over there in Berrien Springs. And if you guys want to check out some of the events, they have them on their various sites. So I will put that information on there and you guys can find out about that. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore an even more fascinating tale of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.